If you want to explain to someone what Jesus did, what his death meant, but you could only use the Old Testament, where would you go? What passage or prophecy, what story or significant event would you turn to? Now, you might say, well, that, that's not even possible. Jesus' death is told in the New Testament. How could we use the Old Testament to talk about the death of Jesus? But don't forget that the earliest Christians, the apostles and those who were taught by the apostles, they didn't have the New Testament. All they had was the Old Testament and what they had seen and heard from Jesus or what they had heard taught by the apostles themselves because the New Testament was being written, right? And if you say, well, why would I ever need to do that? Well, what if you were talking to somebody at work or a friend or a neighbor who is Jewish or has a Jewish background? And they say, well, I believe the, what you call the Old Testament scriptures, what we call the Hebrew Bible. I believe those books, but I don't believe Jesus is the Messiah and I, I don't believe the New Testament. Are you at a complete and total impasse or is there something you could say? Can you talk to that person from the Old Testament scriptures about Jesus? You absolutely can. That's what the apostles did. That's what Paul did. And if you say, well, all all that sounds sort of too theological and academic for me anyway. That's, That's probably not going to happen to me. And I do have the New Testament. So why do I need to think about how the Old Testament relates to Jesus' death? Well, there's a simple answer to that, too. The New Testament, over and over and over and over, uses the Old Testament to explain to us who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. So we need to understand these connections that the New Testament is drawing between what Jesus accomplished and what God did and God promised in the Old Testament in order to get the full picture of even what the New Testament authors are saying. So the New Testament draws, for example, on Isaiah 53, where uh, Isaiah prophesied that uh, a servant of the Lord would take our place, right? would be bruised for our transgressions, would be pierced for our iniquities. We need to understand what Isaiah is talking about to understand how Jesus fulfilled that prophecy. Psalm 22 is the psalm that begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very words that Jesus himself quoted from the cross, drawing our attention to the fact that Psalm 22 describes through the words of David what Jesus' suffering on the cross would be like. But if I were going to pick one story, one event that is both at the heart of the Old Testament and central to explaining what Jesus accomplished through his death on the cross, that story, that event would be the Passover and the Exodus from Egypt. You'd be hard pressed, I think, to find a better place to talk about Jesus' death from the Old Testament than Exodus chapter 12. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look briefly at the Passover, how it worked, what happened, what it was for. Then we're going to look at the cross and how the cross is framed in John's gospel in particular as a Passover event. And then we're going to talk finally about how the Lord's Supper, which again we'll get to take and participate in this morning, is a fulfillment 
of the Old Testament Passover. So first let's look at Exodus chapter 12. And we see in verses 1 and 2 that the month in which the Passover took place, God said would be the first month on Israel's calendar. Now they've been in Egypt for over 400 years. And though they have their own uh, identity as uh, Hebrew people, when they come out of Egypt, they are going to become, as it were, a nation. And they're going to be headed for a promised land. Have not only their own identity, but their own place. And now they're going to have their own calendar. And their calendar is going to mark the exodus from Egypt as the new beginning each and every year. The Passover is going to remind them each year of how God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. So that's why he says in verse 2, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So just as we celebrate a new year and we think of you know new, a new start, a fresh beginning every January, this month, the month in which they celebrate Passover, is the reminder for them each year This is how it started. This is how God delivered us. This is how we got to the promised land, was by God bringing us out of slavery from Egypt. And when they celebrate this Passover, this meal, it's going to to require the sacrifice of a worthy lamb. Look at verse 3. He says, Tell all the congregation of Israel... That on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each one can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. And then verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. So it has to be a lamb that's in good shape, good condition, a valuable lamb that, so that when you sacrifice it to God, it's worth something. It's not a lamb that you think, ah, oh, that one's sick and going to die anyway. Or I don't want to use that one. It's got some kind of deformities, and we're going to kill that one anyway. Might as well give that one to God. No, you can't do that. It needs to be a worthy lamb, a spotless lamb that you sacrifice to God. Now, why does this lamb need to be sacrificed? So look at verse 7. It says, Then they shall take some of the blood... And put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they shall eat it. So they need blood to mark their houses. That's why the lamb has to die. The lamb has to be sacrificed so they can take the blood, put the blood over the doorposts of their house. And they have to do that so that God's judgment will pass over them or pass by them rather than come upon them like it's going to come upon the Egyptians. So, for example, look in the, in the middle of verse 11. It says, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. What is the Lord's Passover? Verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So how are the Egyptians, or excuse me, the Israelites, how are they going to be spared from this 
tenth plague, this final judgment that God is bringing upon the Egyptians. Well, they don't get an automatic pass. I had heard this story, I don't know how many times before I was reading a book that pointed this out, that the, the Israelites don't get an automatic buy, so to speak. The, the Passover is not automatic just because they're Hebrews, just because they're Israelites. But it is only those who sacrifice a lamb and put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts who God will pass by or pass over their houses so that judgment will not come upon them. Why is that? It's because, and again, this was, so the light bulb came on for me when I was reading this uh, from somebody explaining this, right? The Israelites are worthy of judgment just like the Egyptians. The Israelites weren't sinless. They deserved God's judgment. And so, in order for God's judgment to pass over them, a sacrifice had to be made. A substitute had to die. In order for the firstborn son of that family not to die, under God's judgment, a lamb had to die. In a sense, taking God's judgment in that firstborn son's place. That's why there had to be a sacrifice. That's why the blood had to be put on the doorposts. That's why they weren't supposed to leave their house during that night. Because it was only those who were under that blood who were protected from the judgment that would pass through the land that night. And then in verse 14 they're told this is going to be something that's not just going to happen once. But that they are going to remember Year after year after year. Verse 14 says, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So the Passover event only happens once. right? But the Passover meal is supposed to happen every year to remind them year after year after year what God has done for them, how God delivered them. And not only to remind them, but also to give them an opportunity to teach the next generation. Because one day there's not going to be anybody left who was there at the first Passover. And God does not want His people to forget what He has done for them. So when they do this, verse 26 says, When your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? Service, right? What's this lamb about? What's, what, what's this unleavened bread about? What, why are we doing this? When your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. So it's a teaching moment. It's an opportunity to explain to the next generation, to explain to their children what God did for them. You weren't there when this happened, but this event defines our people and helps us understand who our God is. He's the God who rescued us from Egypt. And every year when we eat this specific meal in this special way, we are reminding ourselves that God cared for us, that God rescued us, that God provided a substitute for us, and that God brought us out 
from slavery under the hand of our enemies. And He rescued us. And so each year when we eat this meal, we remember what God did. Now, that moment defined the nation of Israel. right? And that Passover meal was not eaten as often as it was supposed to be. We know that Israel strayed in many ways from the Lord, and they didn't eat it every year. But it was a significant moment, right? And it was a significant meal in uh, the life of Israel. And when we get to the New Testament, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, Israel is still observing the Passover. And the Passover frames the way John, in particular, talks about the death of Jesus in his gospel. Now, I want you to think about, early in the gospel of John, one of the key moments, right, right there at the beginning, is when John is baptizing people in the Jordan River. And Jesus comes. And you remember what John says when he sees Jesus? He looks at him and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, there are a lot of lambs that are sacrificed in the Old Testament, right? There's a, there's a morning sacrifice, there's an evening sacrifice, there's sacrifices at the Day of Atonement. There are lots of sacrifices that happened in Israel. And the Passover lamb is not the only time a lamb is sacrificed. But think about this. When the Passover happened, when that lamb was sacrificed and the blood was put on the doorposts and then God passed through Egypt and slaughtered right, the firstborn sons of the Egyptians, it was on that night that Pharaoh said, fine, get out of here, leave. And they left. And then when they left, where did they go? They went to the Red Sea and they were stuck Right until God parted the waters and they passed through the waters and then God brought those waters down upon the Egyptians once again in judgment right, and destroyed them. When John is baptizing people in the water and pointing to Jesus and saying, Behold the Lamb of God, I think it's very possible that he's intending for us to think about that Passover lamb. Not only that, but when the nation of Israel has spent their 40 years wandering in the wilderness, and now they're finally coming to the promised land under the leadership of Joshua after Moses has died, they come back to the, they come to the promised land and they enter through the Jordan River. And just like God parted the waters of the Red Sea so that they could leave Egypt, God parted the waters of the Jordan River so they could enter into the Promised Land. And one of the first things they did when they passed through the waters of the Jordan and entered the Promised Land, they celebrated the Passover. So again, when John is baptizing people in the river, in the water, and saying, Behold the Lamb of God. I think he's pointing to Jesus as a Passover Lamb whose sacrifice is going to deal with our sin so that God's judgment will pass over us. But that becomes even more clear as we work our way through the rest of the Gospel of John in chapter 12, which is where it sort of shifts from Jesus doing His normal, uh, you know, uh, earthly ministry, healing, teaching, 
traveling around, etc. In chapter 12 is where John begins to tell us about the last week or so of Jesus' earthly ministry. And that chapter begins by saying, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And then in chapter 13, when Jesus is spending some final moments, final hours with his disciples, chapter 13, verse 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And when Jesus is being tried right before his crucifixion, when he has to stand before Pilate and the high priest and whatnot, in John 18, 28, it says, they, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. And then a few verses later in chapter 18, it says, um, Pilate went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And then in chapter 19, verse 14 and 15, it says, Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said, Pilate said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. So over and over and over, John is emphasizing for us, Jesus' death is taking place more or less at the time of the Passover. He's consistently framing Jesus' death as a Passover event. And then, you remember when Jesus was crucified, and he breathed his last, right, said to, to God, like, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. He breathed his last, and he died. And the soldiers came at some point, and they were going to break the legs of the men who were being crucified because they didn't want to leave them on, the, on those crosses, right, during this time of, you know, a holy feast, right, of the Passover. So they come to break the men's legs so that they can no longer push themselves up, so they can no longer breathe, so that they'll die more quickly, because typically crucifixion was a long and painful death. But when they come to Jesus, they realize that he has already died. And so they don't need to break his legs. And John, looking at that moment through the lenses of Scripture, says this in John 19.36. He says, For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. What he's talking about there is one of the instructions that God gave Moses about the Passover back in Exodus chapter 12. Verse 46, where it says that the Passover lamb shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. When John sees Jesus die on the cross at Passover, not needing his legs to be broken, he says, that's our Passover lamb. Jesus just did for us 
what God did in the Old Testament in the Passover. The Apostle Paul comes to the same conclusion. He says very plainly in 1 Corinthians 5-7, he says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus' death was a Passover death. He was a lamb whose blood was shed in the place of God's people so that God's judgment would pass over them. His blood was spilled in our place on our behalf so that Paul could say things like, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No judgment. No wrath. God will pass over you if you are in Christ because Christ is the ultimate Passover lamb. He's the fulfillment of all the Passover was about. Now, John's not the only gospel writer who talks about this. Because Matthew, and Matthew's not the only one either, but Matthew, when he describes the Last Supper, the last meal that Jesus has with his disciples, he wants us to understand that Jesus is eating with the disciples a Passover meal. And this is significant because it helps us understand what Jesus is doing when he takes the bread and the cup and gives them to his disciples and tells them what those now mean. Right? So in Matthew 27, when Matthew tells this story of Jesus' last meal with his disciples, in verse 17 it says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. And they prepared the Passover. Now this is the night when Jesus is going to be betrayed. The night before Jesus is going to be crucified. He's eating with his disciples this Passover meal. This is something they've been doing, again, for hundreds of years. They all know how this meal works. They all know what this meal means. But as they are eating this meal with Jesus, Jesus does something that nobody else had done or should have done over the last hundreds and hundreds of years that Israel has been celebrating this night, this moment. In verse 26, it says, Now as they were eating, they're at the Passover meal, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. You've been eating this bread for hundreds of years, looking back at that moment when God brought your people, our people, out of slavery in Egypt. But I'm taking this bread, and I'm telling you now, this bread is about me. This bread, I want to remind you about what I am about to do. What I am about to undergo. What is about to happen to me tomorrow. This bread now is about me. And really, always has been 
about me. And he does the same thing with the cup, verse 27. It says, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He knows the next day his blood is going to be spilled. He's going to be led like a sheep to the slaughter. But he also knows that he is not simply going to die. He is going to be dying in the place of sinful people like you and me. And he is going to be dying in order to, by his death, secure for us a covenant, the new covenant, that promises the forgiveness of all of our sins. And so he takes that cup on the night before his blood is shed and says, this cup is my blood. And my blood is about a covenant, the new covenant. And my blood is going to be poured out for many people so that their sins will be forgiven. This cup is now and has always been about me. That's why John says in 1 John 1.7 that the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Right? The full context is if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Revelation 1.5 says to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. What's the connection between blood and freedom? It's a Passover connection. It was the blood of the Lamb that was spilled, right, that enabled the Egyptians or the, the, the Israelites to escape from slavery in Egypt. For Pharaoh to finally say, Get out. All our firstborn sons have died. Your firstborn sons, their firstborn sons were spared. And Pharaoh said, Get out of here. And they left because God had passed over them and through judgment on the Egyptians had delivered them and set them free. And John says in Revelation, that's what has happened for us. We weren't enslaved in Egypt, but we were enslaved because of our sin. And Jesus, by His death, by His blood, has set us free from sin. Now, just like with the Passover, Jesus' death only happened once. But we celebrate the Lord's Supper over and over and over to remember what happened and to teach the next generation what happened. That's why when Luke records this story of the Last Supper in Luke twenty-two nineteen, he says, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this remembering what I did. Do this remembering what I accomplished, why I did it, what it meant. All those things I want you to remember as you participate in this meal. And that's what Jesus is telling us as well. As we take the Lord's Supper to remember this bread is about His body about the fact that He took on flesh and became a man so that He could bear our sins in our place. 
That cup is there to remind us of the taste of forgiveness, of the cost that Jesus paid to deal with all of our sin. It's there to remind us of what is true, of a one-time event that has come to define us. This is who we are. We are the people who live under the blood of Jesus. We are the people who have been delivered by the death and resurrection of the Son of God who became the Son of Man. We are Exodus people. We are Passover people because we are Jesus people. We are crucifixion people. We are resurrection people because we are His people. Let's pray.